With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and thank you for downloading another episode of the Glasgow's Green Podcast, aka GigPod. I'm your host Stevie, and today I'm very happy to be joined by someone who is an articulate, precision-based numbers man who, despite his obsession with data analysis, is a thoroughly pleasant individual, and what better way to demonstrate this by giving up his free time to share a platform with someone like myself. Now of course, that rules reads it out. So let's hear it for James Daly, a.k.a. Juco James, who is prominent on Twitter. He's a podcaster as well. James, thanks a lot for coming on GigPod. Thank you for having me. Anytime. James, first off, I just want to ask, what time is it where you are just now to prove how committed you are to the cause here? Well, this is actually refreshing for me at uh, 12, 12.30 p.m., uh, or I get PM, we Americans do the, still do the AM PM thing. But, um, so yeah, normally I'm up at the crack of dawn, uh, five 30 rough plus or minus. Uh, so this, this is actually refreshingly late for me. Actually, you're interrupting my afternoon nap. If I'm honest, I was going to make a dig about <laughs> the, the lack of energy there conflicting with Celtic's play <laughs> just now, James, but no. Uh, so you specialize in markets, economics, and you've, said you have a heavy interest in Celtic FC. Do you look at Celtic objectively as a neutral or are you passionately invested as a fan of the club as well? Yeah, so I my uh, I, I try to be as transparent and upfront about these kinds of questions as I can when I, when I speak with folks. So um, I don't try to pretend that I'm, uh, I've been a born and raised supporter of Celtic. Uh, I certainly have it in my lineage uh, through my mother's side of the family. Uh, she, she's from Clyde Bank, um, but my my active supporting of Celtic didn't really start where I was really engaged at any level until 2004, and then became very active. I mean, I, I'd followed things online at that point. That was kind of before uh, I had reliable broadband and that kind of thing. So I would just kind of check in here and there online, and then uh, it was really more in the 2011, 2012. Uh, time frame where I started to, to follow things more closely. 
So I, I you know, I, I've evolved as kind of a normal fan, quote unquote. Although, you know, I'm an American born and raised. My fan experience is quite different. I think that uh, informs my my uh, engagement with Celtic probably to make me a bit different because uh, I'm not really of Glasgow. I don't have the, you know, the pressures going into work with uh, Ranger supporters and kind of the, the cultural reality of, of being in Glasgow. And, and I don't pretend to be. Um, my, the analytical part of it, I mean, I have a, lo- a long-term background in analytics and then also within the context of being a, a, a sports fan in general, uh, kind of the big three sports in the U.S. and football, baseball, and basketball all my life, really. So that informed, you know, my just general fandom and being a supporter. So I've, I've, I think I view football just because of that a little differently. Um, I didn't actually dive in on the data analytics side for, for football, and particularly sports. Um, Celtic until about 15, 16 months ago. Uh, and that's been a progression. So the, the, the that part of it is uh, actually relatively new. So on a day-to-day basis, I mean, I'm watching a game. I'm just like everyone else. I mean, I, I'm not sitting there calculating XG in my brain when I'm watching a game or anything like that. Uh, I'm swearing and yelling. And y- usually I stand up to watch most games rather than sit down because I've got too much energy uh, in, in, in watching. So, you know, if I, if I have a chance to be in a city where there's a CSC, uh, I certainly do that. I've, I've been to CSCs in New York city and Philadelphia. And then obviously if I'm, when I'm in Scotland, I try to get to games, although that's not real common, uh, given, uh, my kids ages and my, my wife's job and that kind of thing. You've already touched on it, that you're not obsessing with data and analytics during the game. You're just like myself. You're just like everyone else. A fan that shouts and bowls, sometimes irrationally as well, sometimes rationally, depending on how Celtic are performing. As it turned out, you actually predicted how this campaign would unfold back in August, which I'll get to a wee bit later on. But I wanted to ask you, as soon as the game's finished, is that when you switch on to the data and analytics, or do you give it just a few days to sort of digest and then tackle that side of things yeah so i, I try depending on the game so the level of information that's in, uh, available depends on where the where celtics playing and um actually the the broadcast availability so if they're in a game in europe there's some preliminary information that's available pretty quick after the game there's some third party uh guys on twitter that do their own xg models that you can get some preliminary information so i'll start digging into that uh, if, if it's available, you know, for your kind of standard at Ross County uh, Sunday morning game for me at 7 a.m. start time, you know, usually that doesn't become available on um, one of my primary data sources is Y Scout. So that'll come in usually by, I don't know, 9 or 10 p.m., 2100 hours uh, my time on, on a Sunday night, let's say. So I'll, I'll usually take a peek late, late at night. And then, uh, but I, I don't really dive in until the next morning. Um, and that's when I kind of update the, the things I'm tracking. I have, you know, I take the data they have, I create my own metrics, I do my own benchmarking. There's a lot of things that I do that kind of supplement with my analytics background, the, the data sources and the metrics that I get kind of off the shelf from different providers. Um, so I update it, you know, the day or two after, and then, you know, depending on, you know, this isn't my full-time job. So I, I, uh, do it usually early in the morning for a couple hours and then, um, you know, depending on how things play out and the the number of games in the week, uh, which these days is usually two, you know, it's kind of a, a, a hamster wheel, so to speak, of uh, doing it every couple of days. When you're saying that it's not your full-time job, 
do you ever sometimes go on Twitter, look at the hassle that you get for pointing out glaring deficiencies in the team and think, this isn't worth it? Or does that sort of stuff just, is it water off a duck's back to yourself? Yeah, you know, I'd like to say that I'm uh, an Iron Man and it, it's just water off my back. And I do have pretty thick skin. I, I basically made a decision back in the lockdown. You know, we locked down pretty much along with most of the Europe and uh, you know, Canada around the same time in the third week of, of March. And I had a house full. We had some of my in-laws living with us. So it was, it was a bit of a, you know, like with a lot of people, I think trying to cope with that reality uh, was, was not the easiest. So one of my outlets was to kind of dive even more into what I had been doing on the analytics side with, with Celtic. And I, I basically decided, well, I'm going through this effort anyway. Um, I felt like I was coming to, to some conclusions that were not all that well uh, discussed or commonly discussed within kind of the Celtic sphere in social media. So I decided to put a little bit of effort into Twitter and, you know, maybe do my part of ri- uh, raising some of these issues and uh, maybe starting some dialogue and some awareness. And um, so that's really why I started it. And it kind of mushroomed from there started a systematic approach to that in, in May, really. And um, in, in late July, I was invited onto Celtic Underground. And, and that basically really sent things into hyperdrive. So, you know, I, it wasn't something that I really started to do for any kind of attention. It was more so, hey, I'm doing this anyway as a hobby. I feel like I've got a variant perception, uh, a different way of approaching this than anyone else really that I saw. And, and that's again because of my my background. Um, I'm a bit of an autodidact, so uh, my markets and economics background is mostly self-taught. So it's kind of a normal thing for me to pick up things on my own and and apply this kind of analytical process and framework that I've built myself over the last 25 years and to apply it within the context of football data and you know sports analysis wasn't all that different to be frank. So. Uh, as far as kind of the, the muscle memory, the mechanics, I mean, obviously it's different dealing with uh, foreign currency exchange rates versus uh, and how they interpolate with interest rates. That's different than, you know, dealing with uh, expected goals and that kind of thing. So obviously literally they're different, but uh, kind of the muscle memory is how you go about putting together an analytical framework isn't all that different. And and so I felt like I had something to add to the kind of the, the, the community, so to speak. And uh, so that's why I started. And then, you know, uh, the, some of the abuse and all that stuff was, I wa- wasn't terribly unexpected. I think the, the degree with it and the nature of it and um, some of the specific details on it certainly surprised me. And I, I certainly didn't handle it the best I could at some, at certain points, losing my cool maybe, but uh, I've, I've tried to stay above it uh, to, to a decent amount. But you said that, you know, you can contribute to a different way of looking at things. And you certainly made an ignoramus like me sit up and take notice that data analytics in football is certainly, there's a market there for it. I wanted to talk about this one that I was was touched on a couple of times now about the thread that you started in August. Now, back then you were lambasted for creating a thread which highlighted serious problems with our club. Specifically, you stated that the long-term future of Celtic was in jeopardy how a red flag was the players hiring their own coaches and how Neil Lennon himself was mishandling the squad in the modern era. Now, it would seem now three months on, you're actually correct with it, James. Even Martin O'Neill has been touted as an emergency appointment on some sites, which you predicted. Would you have been able to foresee all this 
if you weren't as clued up as you clearly are on data analysis and football? Yeah, so this is where I think that the, the, the data part of it is probably the least important. Um, so the, it's the analytics piece that's uh, where I have some skill set that's probably different. So my, my data background is actually horribly mediocre at best. I'm, I'm flattering myself to even call it mediocre. I, I, I have some background working with a, a software company that was in uh, data management, but I, I don't have any computer science background. I, I don't know any computer languages, Python or R. Um, I understand how to consume the output from those smart people that create those uh, data models. And that, that's where the analytics come in. So there's different domains here that I think get conflated. Uh, and, and understandably, I mean, most people aren't thinking in these terms and sure as heck aren't doing it when they're watching a, a football match. So the, the analytical parts where I think my uh, kind of domain expertise is, is a differentiator and that that's where you get complicated, right? So it, there, there's the language of analytics, which is important. And I think emer- uh, increasingly, whether supporters like it or not, they're going to get bombarded by it. You know, concepts like XG or, you know, the different ways of understanding how the game is played in an analytics for, from an analytics perspective, that that's the language. And then there's the, the domain expertise of taking that information and then drawing analytical conclusions from it. And that's where I applied, you know, some of the skills that I've developed over the last 25 years in a way that I don't think most do, particularly within the world of, of football analytics. And that's kind of what drove me to, to think uh, what I did back in August. And the toolkit, I'll say, of the different things that I use is, is very unconventional because, again, I've, I've built this myself as an autodidact over, over uh, the two plus decades. So. Um, one of the basic concepts in risk management is, is nonlinearity and in, in what we call complex systems. And w- when you get a lot of pressure built up, a lot of risk is building up in a system. And when, when I mean system, what does that mean? Well, it could be a financial market. It could be the personnel interdynamics of, of a, a culture at a, at, a, at a workplace interpersonally. Um, so a system is a broad term, but you get things that, you know, they can seem stable on the surface, but if you're able to analyze the conditions underlying that, and if they look uh, very pressurized, then, then that's indic- indicative of potential instability, right? So that sounds probably crazy to people listening, but um, that's the kind of toolkit I have that I can say, okay, and my gauging of the situation heading into August into the season was that things looked great coming out of last season. Um, But I had identified a lot of underlying weaknesses that had been papered over and that had created a lot of risk. And that if you piled on a lot of these other factors, like being in the midst of a pandemic, like the financial pressures of the, the reality within the club, uh, you had layering and layering and layering of more pressure that created risk, risk, risk. And one of the kind of simple concepts in this is is the nonlinearity of that, um, meaning that it doesn't compound one plus one equals two. You know, as we've seen in, uh, unfortunately, um, with the pandemic is the power of exponential math, power laws and that type of thing. So when that risk starts to get realized, it can go fast and be unpredictable kind of go into chaos, so to speak. And I saw that as risk. And then at really the trigger for me, I mean, I, I, I was pre- pretty pessimistic, but because uh, I didn't see a lot of evidence of Lennon in particular backing away from really bad decisions that could trigger this risk uh, was the Ferenc Faros game. And and when he 
you know, I'm going to assume it was him that made the decisions to, to field the team he did and to set him up the way that he did in a way that I felt was, from an analytics perspective, grossly incompetent. That indicated to me that a lot of these risks were now going to unle- be unleashed, so to speak. And a lot of that, I think at the time, most people weren't thinking about relative to the financial impact on the club. And, and I think that's probably in the last week or two, people are now Steve, even starting to recognize that, unfortunately. Uh, if, if, if we don't win the 10 and um, Rangers are able to qualify for the Champions League, that kind of thing, where you know, I, I was already kind of thinking about that months ago as, as these risk factors play out. So another thing is, after this thread was created, an anonymous Celtic account came gunning for you. Now, there were rumours that it was a couple of people associated with Celtic officially. Many others just said it was a troll account, but what do you believe on that one? Yeah, so that's that's part of one of the things I regret. So, you know, th- that was a, a, a fairly, that was the epicenter of, of the online uh, abuse I took, let's call it. And I probably lost my cool a little bit in that regard. I don't know what to think. Uh, I had some people, very kind people, reach out to me in the midst of that and express uh, uh, some support and also assure me that it was unlikely that the that was uh, directly from the club. I, in, in the midst of it, I, I you know posted some stuff I probably shouldn't have, and and I deleted everything that was related to it because I didn't want anyone that was kind of a victim of a of a hoax, let's say, at the club to be unfairly uh, kind of pulled in onto into nonsense. So subsequent to that, I kind of calmed down and <laughs> applied some of my analytical skills to it <laughs> once I uh, stopped being so emotionally uh, involved with it. And uh, so I you know. The way it unfolded, I, I'm I'm kind of a coin flip. I mean, I, I would be um, some of the stuff that was posted was had enough domain expertise, as I would call it, enough of it was coherent enough in the analytics space that there had to be somebody involved, either directly or indirectly, that had some reasonable knowledge of the space. And whether that was someone at the club or not, I don't I don't think it was just some random person that could have done what they posted at the at that time. So I don't know what to think. I, I do hold an open mind because of the, you know there's been plenty of scandals in the United States of uh, uh, sports personnel being involved in nonsense on social media, uh, including you know general managers and their wives and having burner accounts. So I'm, I'm not gullible. I'm not naive. Um, I mean, I was gullible short term enough to get sucked in on this account, but I, I don't discount anything at, at this stage. And I I think that's part of part of the spiral that's going on since Ferencvaros makes me open-minded as far as who or what could have been involved um, just because of how reckless some of the behavior has been, somehow incoherent, some of the, I, I don't know what to think, but I'm open-minded. I don't rule anything out. For as long as I've been a Celtic fan, I've seen us with some disgustingly bad results in Europe. Some phenomenally bad decision-making has led to a cataclysmic result, and that's under far better managers than Neil Lennon. What was it about this Ferenc Faro's game specifically that the red flags were out for you, that you saw that there was going to be no way back, in your mind at least, for Neil Lennon and that team to salvage the season for you? There was a lot, but I, I'll, I'll highlight three that are kind of interconnected and highlighted. So one of the things that I thought I did have some analytically grounded basis was shifting to three five two. Um, after the the winter break last year, last season. And I actually 
posted some pieces on on Alan Morrison's website, Celtic by the Numbers, highlighting what I thought were the benefits of of going to some system that got uh, McGregor out of being a sitter with Brown, and then also gave a strike partner to Edward. So, um, particularly with El Yunusi hurt and out, I thought that you know there was an analytics basis for that, and it made sense. And if you looked at uh, Neil Lennon's track record at Hibs and even preceding that, he, it wasn't uncommon for him to play some version of three four one two or three four two one or three five two. So it all kind of made sense, and and I was complimentary at that time. I mean, I, actually, I thought it was a good idea, um, and. We did enjoy the benefits of that. McGregor's performance really spiked and output spiked. Edward was, you know, unplayable. Uh, the sample size was very small and, you know, the, the quality of the opponents was pretty, pretty weak, but, you know, it was very good. And so there was a lot of discussion coming into the season about whether 3-5-2 was then going to be the primary system and whether they were going to play uh, Edward and, and Griffiths together. And so that, again, made sense, understood it. And then the the things that took place with with Griffiths obviously were unfortunate, and certainly, you know, is reasonable to believe could have changed their plans uh, once they got into preseason and and understood that Griffiths wasn't going to be reliable or available at that uh, during the qualifiers. But then we persisted with either going three five two, and we kind of got erratic, so we reverted back to four two three one. And then we played a midfielder at striker, which was specifically the Ferenc Faros with Christie at striker. And, and we kind of went back to all of the negatives that were there for the 4-2-3-1 with Brown anchoring next to McGregor, only Brown a year older. Um, and that was the other main thing, which was I had made the analytical conclusion really last season that Brown's time in Europe should be done um, and, and that really he, he should have been transitioned out last season. Um, because his performance levels had dropped to a point where he was no longer really more than uh, kind of an average Europa League level defensive midfielder. And heading into this season with a normal aging curve, that would indicate the likelihood that he was going to be a below average uh, Europa League uh, level uh, defensive midfielder. So, you know, the, the, the payoff of playing the 4 2 3 1 with McGregor next to Brown, given that dynamic, was was really unwise in my judgment, and predictably so. And then to play uh, Christie as the, the striker in in, uh, in that system didn't make any sense to me. So I, I thought it was really incoherent. And that, that's probably my uh, word of the, the season so far has been, there's just been a lot of incoherence, things taking place and decisions being made that don't have good grounding analytically, in my judgment. And Ferenc Faros was so grossly incompetent in that regard that I was convinced at that point. I'd, I'd remained hopeful at that up until then that maybe uh, he wasn't going to jump off the the ledge, so to speak, metaphorically, and would would uh, at the last minute pull back. But um, uh, he he certainly didn't. And then. You know, the problem from there is we've just doubled and tripled down from there. Going to three five two then and playing midfielders as one of the two strikers and having Taylor as a wing back in that system and uh persisting with Brown despite his decline, you know, it's just it's really just been bad decisions after bad decisions. And in my view, and and uh we, we haven't had some of the the forces in play to paper over those cracks that I talked about that, that were there last year, 
it came rushing to the foreground with with all of these problems. So the risk factors of not qualifying for cha- qualifying for Champions League and what that would mean for retaining an Edward, uh, an Incham, and an Iyer, and it ends up that we we kept them anyway. But there's a concept in in uh, with my financial markets background about risk not really disappearing; it gets transmuted. Um, so you can change the shape of the risk, but you can't eliminate it once it's present. And uh, so we certainly didn't get rid of that risk when we didn't make Champions League. It got transmuted into unhappy players who wanted to go away, seemingly and understandably. Looks like they were told they had to stay, or they were, you know, unreasonable uh, price were, prices were asked. Whatever, whatever uh, mix of factors that drove the fact that all four of them ended up staying, and and you know that's manifested itself in players not being happy. Uh, so the, it's just been a, just a overall feedback loop of a concept called reflexivity, uh, that that's caused all of this risk to manifest in, in so many different ways. You said that incoherent is a word that you would use for this season. I can think of something far stronger. I'm going to keep this flowing, James. <laughs> Tomorrow I'm speaking to someone who played under Neil Lennon for two seasons. And I only just learned the other day that he gave an interview. And in that interview, he said that he studied nothing about the opposition players. And the most that he found out about any opposition players week to week was in a match programme, which to me is absolutely alarming. Does that surprise even yourself? Well, I, I think, you know, depending on the timeline of when that occurred, you know, it, it's been an evolution. So I, I, I remember uh, during the lockdown, there was an old scouting report from the uh, uh, the cup final in 2003 from Porto that had gone around uh, from Porto scout, basically scouting Celtics team. Uh, so, you know, some level of that kind of opposition analysis has taken place for, for quite some time. I, I mean, Again, this is where I get back to. I, I don't think uh, Lennon is 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 um, competent in, 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 from an analytics perspective. Uh, and again, that, that that's not unusual. I mean, uh, for the average person, the average footballer. I mean, when I hear most of these ex-footballers interviewed or punditry, most of them are completely ignorant. I mean, I, and this is not just football players. I mean, uh, one of the great baseball players of all time, one of the greatest second basemen of all time, and Joe Morgan died not too long ago. And he had been a broadcaster after he retired, and he went to his grave being a complete analytics denier, <laughs> you know, uh, to the point where he w- just would spew incoherent stuff that was completely and provably wrong. So this is not unusual. Uh, and in fact, it's predictable. Um as, as sports kind of evolve and get modernized with, with some of this knowledge, I, I, most players, ex players, even current players, that's, that's probably the part, you know, the, I remember the, uh, the open goal interview that, uh, that Tierney did, um, back in August, he talked about the amount of information that they're, he's getting at, at Arsenal and the briefs and the studying that they have to do. And that is completely different than the culture in Scotland. But I can tell you in North American sports, uh, players go to class. Like that's part of their job is they do homework. They do studying of oppositions, uh, opposition players, opposition tactics, opposition strategy. And, and as much of their preparation is in their head as it is physically. 
And that's, again, that's part of the sea change that's going to take place. And that's part of the things that I'm seeing. I've been concerned about that, you know, Celtic clearly show that they're not doing it from a competitive perspective. And um, to a large, uh, I'm not saying that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread at it, but based off of public media reports on what Rangers are doing, uh, they're doing it to a larger degree. They're doing walkthroughs, which is a basic concept that North American sports, you know, a Bill Belichick at the Patriots would do, for example, uh, is just having players go on the field and walk through scenarios and tactics. And, 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 you know, if they do this, we move here, you know, it's basically, um, almost like a virtual pre pre planning, a virtual reality and, and ga- gaming the game ahead of time. James. So if a new manager, say Lennon's replaced tonight for the Sparta Prague game, we get a new manager in. How long can a manager realistically change the culture from the way it was under Neil Lennon to doing even the bare minimum, as you say, walkthroughs, which I'd never heard of before, but you're the expert on this one. So how long can that take to integrate into a club to see results? Yeah, so I, th- this is where, um, as an outsider, it's impossible to know. But I, I can say, having worked in an environment where the leadership, the primary person that I was working for had no idea what they were doing <laughs> in certain capacities, uh, and the people working for this person understood that they had no idea what they were doing, that can have a massive um, impact on morale and confidence, uh, people going through the motions, whether consciously or subconsciously, uh, you can try and give your, your hundred percent effort, but th- th- this can mis- metastasize in ways that is, you know, very significant if, if confident has been, been lost. And I, and, and, you know, some of the stuff that has been said publicly and throwing players under the bus, I mean, it, it's just, you know, that was part of the, the second part of the Ferenc Faros uh, debacle was, was the, the post game, um, press conferences. And that's just been compounded since then in this spiral of, of just incoherence. And so there's the human part of it, which is, you know, that that's just removing the problem. If you get rid of the, the driver of that uh, incoherence and unhappiness, uh, that people are going to generally get a lift, uh, you know, unless you're bringing in a bigger problem. Uh, which hopefully that wouldn't be the case. The, the the tactic side and the strategy side, that's hard. I mean, that's that's much harder. That's why I advocated that this should be taken care of quickly back in August, because the longer it goes, two things happen. The harder it is to do it in intra-season when, when the fixtures pile up and the pressure is building, but also the longer you wait and, and the, the deeper the hole you've dug, the harder it is and the lower the probability of success. Even if you do everything right, relative to a Rangers team that has their you-know-what together and that has a lead now. So the margin for error has been been shrunk quite a bit. Um, and this is where I go back to the, you know my thinking on Kennedy, which is that that analytical competence to me is front and center. And that might be my confirmation bias because I'm an analytics guy. Um, maybe we get maybe we bring a, a rah-rah fire breather in and our town is so much better that you know the analytics stuff and the tactics can be secondary and you know, we, we can get uh, the players buying in again and running through brick walls, metaphorically speaking. Um, I just I'm worried about that because of how good I see Rangers set up. And, and so I need, I think we need that some balance between that t- that tactical uh, proficiency grounded in analytics, uh, selection grounded in analytics, coherence there with 
you know, just unburdening the players of having to be in a, and I don't want to be too melodramatic here, but a, a hostile work environment. I mean, when you're working for someone that you, you no longer have confidence in, or at some point maybe don't like personally because of what's been going on, which is possible. I'm not saying it is happening, but you know, that wouldn't, you know, be a crazy scenario. Removing that from the equation can unleash people from having stress and resentments and anxieties and just unhappiness. So I think between those two things, I'm actually relatively optimistic if this change is made and coherence returns. Um, And when I say optimistic, meaning that I think we can get back to like a coin flip. That's where we're at now. I mean, Rangers are good enough that there's, there's no scenario here where we're a slam dunk to win the league now that that's, it's too late for that. In my judgment, you know, thinking from an analytics and a probability perspective, there's too much variance, there's too much, too many things that can happen. Um, So I think a best case scenario, and this is what I kind of tweeted out um, yesterday, is we should go, if if we're going to lose this, let's go down fighting. Let's go down swinging and, and with our best effort and playing our best players in their best positions with coherent tactics um, with players giving their all for a, a manager that they actually want to play for. And I think almost none of that has been present. This is back to that incoherence. We have had none of that this season. And I think we could be a sleeping beast here that could be unleashed if the right decisions are made and the right people are put in charge. And again, I don't know who they are. All my you know, opinion is supposition in that regard. But that also comes back to the people in charge and whether anyone should have confidence that they're going to make the right decision on that, uh, given their track record up until now. And that's where the anxiety is when you talk about, you know, a a keen coming in or uh, some of these other potential scenarios. Your gut instinct, if Celtic still keep Neil Lennon on, is this season unsalvageable? Yeah, I mean, I I would never say 0% because you never know what's going to happen. I tried to be cognizant over the summer that I didn't want to completely have people switch me off and not listen to anything I had to say. Uh, so I, I didn't release all of my, you know, I didn't publicly state all of my opinions at the time. I mean, I, I went into the season thinking Rangers were favorites uh, based off of what I was seeing analytically. Now that's even, you know, it, it, it's manifested in a way that, uh, is is significantly worse from probabilities perspective now. I think if Lennon is retained, it's as close to zero as as, as I would ever say. I mean, I, I just cannot see a scenario where outside of just calamitous COVID issues at Rangers or you know just something real outlier um, that could happen. I mean, from a human level, I hope that doesn't happen to anybody. <laughs> um, but you know. I just don't see a scenario where Lennon remains in charge and that we could win the league uh, at this point. I thought yesterday's podcast was as far away from positivity as you could get. But James, you have destroyed even John (laughs) Reid when it comes to realism with the current state of the Celtic team. But it's been absolutely fascinating to have you on. Um, And again, you said Neil Lennon, not in a nasty way, is analytically ignorant. I was uh, at the start of the season until I read your thread, my good good friend Sean put me on to it and ever since I've been trying to understand that there is definitely a lot of room for data analytics in the Scottish game and it's something that I certainly have to learn more of because if a guy like you has predicted what is going to happen then you can't just be so dismissive of it anymore. 
Well, I appreciate that. And, and you know, I'm not uh, infallible. Uh, um, even the best analysts make mistakes, uh, errors in judgment. I am human. I have my own biases. So, uh, but no, I, I appreciate that. And I, you know, the, the, the thing I want to leave with is there is hope. Like I, I, you know, there, that's what I focused my thread on yesterday. I mean, there is a path to where this isn't over. I mean, I think this was my part of my concern that I laid out over the summer, which is if this spiraled and the risk manifested, one of the worst things that was going to happen was that the the support was probably going to turn on Lenin and eventually probably Brown and that their legacies could be, you know, harmed as a result. And I think that's starting to happen, unfortunately. And uh, people are starting to lose hope. And, you know, I'm not a keep the faith guy. Um, I'm a reason guy. Uh, I'm an analytics guy. And I think there's reason for confidence um, if good decisions are made. We have really good players. I think we underestimate how good the players are at Rangers and, and Mass. I mean, I think most of our supporters are still probably a little bit uh, over biased in that regard. They're really good. They have a lot of really good players, and they're they're being well coached. So we need to get our you know what together, and we can do that. And I still think that our on. You know, in 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 total, our players uh, can be put up in a way or positioned in a way that we can be better than them. I just want us to have a chance to do that. And and I, I think at this point, I mean, losing the ten is going to be horrible no matter what. But if it comes May and we go down fighting, I'll feel a lot better about it than if we go into total meltdown and. You know, Lennon isn't sacked until after we lose at, at Ibrox and on January second. I mean, that that would just be uh, unthinkable and and so terrible. And 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 again, explode the risks long term to the club financially. This is where we get into a whole other conversation about where the club's heading post ten in a row. But so I I still I still see a path. I I don't think there's no hope from an analytics perspective. I just think we're, we're reaching the point now where good decisions have to be made. It's no longer they should be made. It's like, okay, you know what, or get off the pot. We have to do it like now, uh, or else the hole's going to be so deep that from an analytics perspective, it's almost a foregone conclusion, even if we bring in Pochettino on January, January 3rd. It's going to be too late at that point. You are indeed a podcaster like myself, James. Where can the audience find you online and where do you do your podcasts? Yeah, so I'm at Juco James on Twitter and uh, just started a new podcast with N. Nicole and uh, Alan Morrison from Celtic by the Numbers, focusing mostly on analytics uh, related to Celtic. And uh, that's called the Huddle Breakdown. And it's Huddle Breakdown, uh, at Huddle Breakdown on, uh, on Twitter. Excellent. Thanks a lot for coming on. Much appreciated, James. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Stevie. Thanks for inviting me. Podcast Network.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.